Being a working parent isn't easy, and it seems to be getting more and more difficult with each passing year. It's also now the norm. In 2020, 95% of married couples with children had at least one working parent, and 60% of married couple families with children were both employed, while 72% of parents who lived without a partner were likely to be employed. What if there were evidence-based tools and resources we could access that would ditch the guilt, manage the feelings of overload, and enhance the quality of our lives. Welcome to the latest episode of the Health, Wellness, and Performance Catalyst. I'm your host, Dr. Brad Cooper, co-founder of the Catalyst Coaching Institute. And today's discussion brings Dr. Yale Schoenborn, author of the new book, Work, Parent, Thrive, to your ears. For our longtime listeners, the name might possibly ring a bell as she joined us almost two and a half years ago, and you were a big fan. So with her new book coming out, we're excited to have a great reason to bring her back. As we head into the final month of the year, it's a common time to begin reflecting on the future. If that future includes pursuing your NBHWSC-approved health and wellness coach certification, now is a good time to get registered for our program that kicks off the end of January. And keep in mind, pursuing certification through Catalyst isn't just earning a piece of paper. It's joining a community that is there to support you every step of the way. From the personal connection to the complimentary national board prep for our students to the bonus materials for those interested in building your own coaching business, you'll find Catalyst to be a great partner as you move forward. Please feel free to reach out to us anytime with questions. Email is results at catalystcoachinginstitute.com or you can find details at catalystcoachinginstitute.com. Now, it's time to tap into the working parent wisdom of Dr. Yale Schoenbrunn on the latest episode of the Health, Wellness, and Performance Catalyst. Dr. Sean Brunn, it's so fun to have you back. Welcome. Congratulations on your new book. This is awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for having me back. I am a huge fan of your podcast and all that you bring into the world, Brad. It's it's amazing work. And as a podcaster myself, I really appreciate the quality and the evidence backing that you do in, in what you share here. Yeah, much appreciated. Thank you so much. Now, the, the past few years, obviously, even extra difficult time for working parents. Do you think we've been sitting on a tipping point and then the stress of the pandemic and all that was involved with remote schooling and work and all that kind of stuff then pushed us over the edge? Was it already set up for this? And then that just threw us off the edge to the other side? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm i a working parent myself. And it was a huge irony because I went under contract for this book during the pandemic. So Ooh. there I was writing a book <laughs> with my three children. My youngest at the start of the pandemic was three. So three, uh, seven and 10 all home being wow. homeschooled while writing a book and trying to keep up a private practice. I think it was a tipping point for lots of people. And I think it really exposed what people had already been talking about in terms of the stressors that working parents are under and the system that doesn't quite make it feasible for many of us to yeah. persist in, in, you know, doing the kind of parenting and sustaining the necessary income and the meaningful work that is so important to us. So I think it's a great time to be having the kind of conversations that, that we're going to be having. Yeah. No, no doubt. Now you bring an evidence-based approach to the subject, but there are plenty of people who, <laughs> it's just so funny. They're out there claiming to have the answers. They are bringing no research into the discussion. What are some of the claims that you're hearing recommended that don't work or that just make you shake your head or roll your eyes or just like, are you flipping kidding me? 
Well, the main thing that I argue, and I, I really feel this to be true, but I am confident that people will push back on me that I think many people see this as an outside in uh Pro, as as a problem that can be fixed through outside in solutions. In other words, things like renegotiating marital arrangements, uh, creating more flexible workplace policies, uh, creating you know better maternity and paternity leave, family leave. And I think all of those things are really important and and actually are helpful. But I don't think it gets to the root of the problem, which mm. is that most working parents are really tugged from a psychological place towards mm. two roles that really mattered enormously to them. And so the thing that makes me shake my head and frustrates me is when people propose, oh, if we just had higher quality, more affordable childcare, then working parents wouldn't feel this way. And I, I don't think that that's correct, even as I really do hope that there is better, more affordable, uh, more available childcare for, for folks. But um, I just don't think it's one of these, it, it's a human psychological problem, which is really why I wrote the book. I think when I became a working parent and began to struggle mightily, um, you know, I'm a psychologist, so I started, and a nerd, so I started reading everything <laughs> I could get my hands on. Um, and, you know, what I found were really the kinds of solutions that I just mentioned, um, you know, pointing to all the injustices that exist. And I, I think those are true. And yet there was a part of me that really didn't buy into them wholesale because I, I could see sort of from my own position and because I think about things so much from a psychological perspective that that wasn't the entire um, story. That is so interesting. And what a great way to start this off because I, I naturally went there too. Uh, the logistics. Okay. If we had coverage, if we had support, if we had time, if we had the trade-offs of the spouses, uh, but you're saying yes, and, and there's yeah. another issue that we're not really talking about, and that's the issue that you're really trying to dive into deeply. Yeah, and so I think this is one of the, one of the I, I sort of describe it as three fundamental truths. One is that we are drawn to different roles. Freud has this great quote, love and work are the cornerstones of our humanness. And I think that's really true. And you can love people. It doesn't have to be your kids, mm -hmm. but I think that's a huge part of being human. And we want to make meaningful contributions. It doesn't even have to be through paid work, but most people want to do something to have a meaningful life that feels like a contribution and work is a, a natural way to, to offer that. Um, and so we're drawn to these two different things. And so the second truth is they will naturally conflict, right? We're going to be pulled in two different directions. But a third truth, and this is really what I want to get across, is that that tension between our two roles doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can be uncomfortable, but we can learn how to harness it for good. And this kind of gets to why I think working parents and, and anybody really with multiple demanding roles can learn some of these tricks from social science to allow that tension to benefit us, that there's ways that we can harness it for, for lots of good outcomes and, you know, enjoy the process along the way a bit more when we can see that. Yeah. Oh, this is great. All right. Your, your book digs into the biggies, guilt, feelings of being overwhelmed, and then the issues of connection. Let, let's talk about each one of them separately. So first guilt, what's going on here and, and <laughs> what, what can we do as parents since we can't do it all? Yeah. Well, this is this is a biggie for parents. And I think guilt, like any emotion. So I come at most emotions 
from a functional perspective. So what's the function of an emotion? What's it trying to tell you? The, the trick with many of our emotions is that they're wired into us, you know, if you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, for survival purposes. But our our culture, our technology has evolved much more rapidly than our brains and our bodies. And so some of these emotions that used to serve us quite well for survival purposes don't serve us very well for happiness. That, that's not even what they're intended to do. Right, right. Good point. So, so coming back to guilt, I think guilt is a really important emotion. It tells you if you've done somebody wrong, right? Somebody that you care about, you've let them down, you've hurt them. So guilt is a cue. The function is to cue you to repair the relationship because we're social creatures. We don't want to be ousted from the tribe. But here's the thing is that these days we feel guilty about lots of things that there's really no need to feel guilt about. And so figuring out, learning how to discern between when guilt is cueing you to like, no, you do need to show up for your kids, whatever uh, talent show, because it's really meaningful to them. But no, you don't need to give them dessert every night, right? When they give you a guilt trip, you can say, okay, I kind of feel bad. But also I know that that's not something to uh, drive my behavior. That emotion is not actually serving me well. And so one of the things that I really encourage people to do is to really get curious, you know, what is that guilt telling me? Is it helpful and if it's not helpful to reconnect to the values of like how you want to show up as a parent, how you want to show up as a worker. One of the things, too, that I think is really important and, and one of the ways that work that, that having these multiple roles pulling on you in different directions can actually be quite helpful is that many of the ways that we're prompted to parent these days are actually in the overparenting category. They're not that helpful. Mm. And so even as we might feel guilty, we can ask ourselves, is this a good opportunity to give my kids a little bit more independence, to allow them to problem solve for themselves, to allow them to tolerate the discomfort of not knowing where their jacket is or not having uh, the lost toy that, that you know, I'm not going to spend my time finding because I have to go get this deadline met. And so these are really uh, useful ways to say, OK, the guilt is telling me something but I don't need to pay too much attention to it. In this case, it's not serving me well. It's actually going to be more helpful to me as a parent to allow for the guilt to, to, you know, notice it, let it go and keep on doing what I'm doing, knowing that that's better for my kids. Okay. So that pulls us back to something we've been talking about the last several episodes, this idea of reflection time. It seems like that's a missing element in today's society. We We don't have time because, we're rushing off to the next thing or, you know, we got to check our Facebook page or our Instagram page or whatever. So we don't take the moments to think about, I love what you're saying here. Guilt's a cue. That emotion is there for a purpose, but then we need to reflect on or, or, or ponder, well, what's it really telling me and what's the real answer? So let's take a quick rabbit trail into the, the reflection piece. Help for parents that are like, are you flipping kidding me? I, I don't have time to think this stuff through. The kid needs a cookie. I'm just giving him a cookie because I got to get this other thing done. Any tips from someone who's lived it on multiple fronts at the same time of how you can create that, that microsecond to say, wait a minute, what is this really doing? Yeah. Well, time is a huge issue for working parents or again, anybody with multiple demanding roles. And I think it is one of, I think 
a couple of things. And one is that we can do some of our thinking on the go. We can do it, for example, with our kids on our commute, um, you know, before we go to bed. It just requires a little bit of intentionality. Um, and it is better and easier if you build habits around it. So, for example, I do some thinking time before I go to bed. I, I read to kind of calm my brain down and then I really dedicate myself. It is a bit of a mindfulness practice where, you know, I'm falling asleep. I really try to um, do some reflections either on the day or counting my breaths or, you know, just uh, reflecting on good moments that I've had during the day, because that we know is really helpful for happiness. And hopefully we'll talk a little bit about happiness practices as well. Uh, working parents can fit them in, but you need to be a bit strategic. Um, and you can do reflection with your kids, you know, think aloud with them, you know, what's important here, what's not, what, what do you think uh, would help you to you know, become a, a bigger kid and achieve some of the things that feel important to you? What do you think I could do less of? So these are conversations you can actually have with your kids, which I think is very powerful and provides them a sense of agency in helping to choose, you know, what kinds of things get included, what kinds of things are dropped from the schedule. And that brings me to my next point, which is Ooh, I actually... I, I want you to say that again, because that is awesome. Like, I love that recommendation. I, can you imagine being a six-year-old and your mom or dad saying, you know, so, sweetie, what, what, how do you think we should do this different? Like, wow. Talk about <laughs> development. Like, have you done some of that with your kids? What's the result been? Have, have, has your older one, who's now, what, 12... Uh, twelve, giving, yeah. Giving you feedback, like talk us through this because I love that idea. Yeah, so I will say my kids are all healthy and you know developing and sort of within normal kind of developmental spectrum. So I'm able to do a lot of these kinds of things, and I don't mean to you know suggest that anybody needs to do exactly what I do, but sure, I've sure. been able to even with my five year old, and and you know for a couple of years now have these kinds of conversations in somewhat developmentally adjusted ways. But for example, I'll just share with all of your listeners that currently my kids are not yet back in school as we're recording. And so they're home. Uh, this week, we only have partial week camp and they're outside playing. And I and I gave them a choice. I said, you know, you can have a little bit of screen time today. You can do it while I'm recording a podcast interview or you can play outside and save your screen time for tonight. <laughs> and and they get to weigh in, you know, with some options and um, it's really good for them to make those choices. What what researchers have found is the more you give kids a sense of agency, they're able to build competence and really uh, enjoy some of the learning that they do as they're having that independence. And when they're outside, they're probably, I have three boys, they're probably going to fight and they're going to need to figure <laughs> it out for themselves. And, you know, I'm here. So if an emergency <laughs> happens, you know, we'll pause our exactly. recording. But from a more general perspective, they'll need to figure it out because they know that I'm doing something important that can't be stopped. And I tell them that I said, you know, you cannot interrupt me unless there's an emergency. And so you'll need to figure it out. And, and they know that. Um, and so they've learned how to do that because I'm a working parent. So so here's another situation that's very an on the ground example of how my work has given them opportunities to build skills, to learn interpersonal strategies, to be independent, to problem solve, to learn to entertain themselves, to be bored and not come to me for an answer of how to cure their boredom. And these are all things that in our modern society, because we structure our kids' activities, because we're encouraged to be always hovering around them, that, that they've been able to do. But back to your question, I mean, in terms of the conversations and allowing them to weigh in, 
I think we can do that, you know, in developmentally appropriate ways and really thoughtful ways. And and kids are often capable of more than we think they are. Mm. So I think, you know, with whatever age your kids are at, you know, test the waters of what kinds of decisions they'd like to make more. What do they like doing? What do they not like doing? You know, do they want to go to this birthday party or do they not? Do they want to do that activity instead of the other? You know, help them to understand that making choices is a part of life. They can't have everything. They can't do everything, but they can choose the things, you know, within limits of what is sure. possible within your family structure of what feels important to them. And you can help them and give them opportunities to do that. And if you don't agree and you can tell them, I don't agree, but if you'd like to do it, I'll support you. And if it turns out not to be right, that's a great learning experience for them. Mom's kicking in the marshmallow test. I love it. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I interrupted you. Can... It's great. <laughs> exactly. So I interrupted you. Keep rolling with that last thought if we can get back to it. Otherwise, I can carry us forward. Oh, so I think the last thought was just about subtraction. I think, you know, most of the self-help literature is all about, you know, Add in mindfulness, add in exercise, yes. add in more sleep. Yes. And I think working parents especially are kind of like, there. there's no room to add exactly. more stuff. Uh, one wonderful researcher whose work I love, and he's got a great book called Subtract, The Science of Less is Lighty Klotz. And I just got really into this idea that he writes uh, from a perspective, he's an engineer, but also collaborates with behavioral scientists. And so what they've discovered through this series of studies is that the human brain is really tends to default to adding. When we have a problem, the automatic impulse is, what more can I do to solve this problem? Mm. And so in the self-help literature, this is kind of what you see, like all the things that you can do more of. But, and again, that makes sense from an evolutionary perspective because most of the problems, you know, in pre-modern times were not enough calories, not enough uh, associations with tribal members, not enough shelter. So more was a very natural and helpful impulse. But in our modern society, not having enough is is usually not the problem. I mean, it, it can be sometimes, but more often than not, it's that we are already overwhelmed. But because of this default wiring in our brain, our tendency to add more just leads to more overwhelm. And what's really critical here is the more overwhelmed we are, the more likely we are to add the, and the more likely we are to overlook subtraction as an option. Knowing that, however, gives you a really good trick, which is to build in cues to your environment to subtract, to figure out with your kids, with your work colleagues, with your boss, with your partner, what, given how overwhelmed I am, what can I slough off because it's not as important? You know, it could be social media, but it could also be meetings that don't feel very productive. It could also be, you know, birthday parties if you're not into them or thank you cards if you don't find value in them or extracurriculars, you know, just because everybody else is doing it doesn't mean you have to. And I think recognizing that we have a tendency to add instead of subtract is really motivating to try to do a bit more of that, to make more room for what counts for you. And maybe what counts for you is a little bit of downtime. Working parents deserve some downtime. It's good for us. It's good for our kids. And figuring out how to do that can require some really deliberate subtracting, but it's a little bit like weeding your plants. You know, it's, you just have to make the time to do it and, and make it a habit too. And I know you and I have both interviewed Greg McEwen, love his work. Mm, same same yeah. concept. How do we, how do we pull it back a little bit? Yes. All right. That leads in nicely to your second big point, overwhelmed. It, this goes well beyond parenting. So 
maybe you can extend this out to the the listeners who maybe aren't parents or they're not in that phase of life right now. Um, we just feel overwhelmed. You've started to talk about that with the subtraction. Other tips along those lines that we can integrate. Well, one of my favorite tips comes from the stress research, which is this idea of having a stress mindset, right? Over feeling overwhelmed is, you know, almost synonymous to feeling kind of stressed out. Like we have so many demands and we feel like we can't meet them. And one really useful mindset shift is to see stress as adaptive, as advantageous, right? We're stressed because we care about all of these things. And so shifting our mindset from, oh my God, overwhelm is a terrible thing to, no, this is actually helpful because it's motivating me to do some of the things that really matter and bring in some of that question of, you know, do all of the things matter? Or do just some of the things matter? Because if I really prune out the things that aren't the most critical to me, then the stress really is going to serve me well, because then I'll have the motivation to figure out how to address all of these different things that really uh, make my life meaningful and rich and interesting and um, help me to contribute and help me to make my family a happier place. One thing that I'll just share from a personal perspective is I got so into this stress mindset research that I, I shared it with my kids. And now whenever I tell them I'm really stressed out, they say, but mom, stress is good for you, which makes me laugh, which is wonderful. Oh, that was awesome. So essentially, I, I, this is a great concept. And we interviewed Kelly McGonigal, obviously, she talks a lot oh, about yes. the value of Her stress. So oh, great. so valuable. Yeah. It's one of our most popular interviews we've ever had. But I, I love this concept because you're saying, Almost like you did earlier with this emotion is a signal. Stress is a signal. This is a, an opportunity. It's a resource. It's a tool if used correctly. Don't yes. apply the stress to, I don't know, I need to clean up my office. Apply the stress to let's focus in on this project that needs to get done by next Friday. So again, signal, valuable signal if the filter is used correctly. Yeah. And if you set your mindset to being able to see the value, right, it sort of starts with the mindset of the stress is not the problem. The stress is a cue, right? right? There's lots of things going on that I care about that that need to be done, or, or maybe you don't even care about them, but that have, you know, demands associated with them. Okay, this my body is getting activated to address these things. I'm feeling kind of overwhelmed, but this is my body, my adrenaline kicking in, my brain saying, you know, this really it needs to be paid attention to. And so when we can have that mindset of, okay, this stress is helping me to address whatever the things are, the many things, and how can I do it in a, in the most effective way possible? And so when we have that mindset, this can help me, then we can ask ourselves that next question, which is, how is it going to help me? Right. How am I going to approach this in the most, you know, efficient, effective, thoughtful way? And the reality is, you know, sometimes it's hard to figure out if you have, you know, 10 different things weighing on you at the same time. It can be really tricky to figure out which to address first. And there I just recommend people writing it down, getting it out of the mind space. This is a technique that psychologists have known uh, work works well for stress, for anxiety, for overwhelm get it down on a piece of paper, prioritize, put your A list of things that need to get done today, put everything else on a B list, chunk out time dedicated, chunk out more time than you think you'll need. And sometimes, you know, when I'm with a patient in my office, you know, we'll really go through, you know, what are the things, what's realistic to get done today? What's the top of the line? When is the time of day that you're going to be most effective in doing it? 
Um, what is something you want to do, but less important? And also, what's going to fuel you through the day? Because, you know, it's not just today that you have to think about. You have to get through the week and the month and the year. So it isn't just about sort of uh, sprinting through it all. It really is the long game. Yeah. So valuable. It, it It's almost humorous. I've noticed with myself when I put something on the calendar and I see that list growing, that angst builds up inside of me. I put it on the calendar. I, I put the, all those <laughs> things. I can, I found, I just moved them to a different day and all of a sudden, uh, what you're saying, prioritize. Okay, there's 12 things on there. What What are the three that really matter? And let's move the other ones. And all of a sudden I'm like, okay, I'm good now. It was all me. Like, it's so interesting. I've gotten into a habit, and this was inspired by one of my podcast guests who wrote this great book called Redefining Rich of mapping out my week. I just take a piece of scratch paper. I write all the things down that I think I would like to get done for the week. So the bottom part is kind of my to-do list. And then I chart out Monday through Friday and then a weekend section. I chart out what hours I have available, when I think I'm going to get the things done. uh, And I, you know, prioritize charting in the most important things and the other stuff that I want to get done will fit in if I have room. And I often do because I'm, I'm sort of deliberate about carving out space for the things because many of the things that I really want to do, writing often doesn't have a deadline, but it's really what I want to do, um, are not priorities. They don't have, nobody's necessarily begging for them or requiring them. So I, I, I organize myself in that way. And it's really helpful because all the kids stuff can go on there too, the work stuff. And I actually wear a lot of professional hats as well. I am a private practice clinician. I write, I podcast and I see, um, and, and I'm a parent. So I sort of wear a lot of different hats. So the seeing it all on paper is helpful. Right. Right. Absolutely. All right. The last of the three connection, this one stood out in your title. What, what made you decide to highlight this as one of your big three focus areas? Two reasons. One is that by training, I'm a marital researcher and I specialize in couples therapy and, and parent child and parent coaching really. Um, so I'm a relationship specialist by training and my expertise. And the second reason is that, you know, one of the things that I realized as I started diving into this writing about work and parenthood is that work and parenthood are in relationship with each other. So we're really thinking about growing connection between our roles as well as with the people that we care about in life. And I guess maybe there's a third thing too, which is, you know, for a lot of people who have a many, many demanding roles, partnership can really take a hit because that your partner is not the one who who can't feed themselves or who, if you don't respond to them, you know, you're going to lose your job. And so it's often the case that relation romantic relationships drop to the very bottom of the pile. Um, And I see that a lot in my private practice. Well, and I can talk a little bit about some of the strategies and, but, and this is another area where I actually think that having multiple roles can be surprisingly helpful that there are gifts to take home. It is true that you have less time for a relationship when you have kids and a job. I mean, there just are only so many hours in the day, but you can get a little bit crafty and you can use the fact of having multiple roles to benefit your romantic relationship as well. Um, In part because, you know, one thing that we know is really helpful for long-term marriages is having variety, keeping things interesting, staying interesting for your partner. 
helps marriages thrive. And, you know, who's more interesting than somebody that's got 10 balls in the air at the same time and is always having to adapt and learn and grow and try new things because your kids are hitting new developmental milestones. So that variety is actually really good for relationships. It's also really good because inevitably you'll have things that you differ on, um, which is actually really nice because you and your partner can be good compliments to one another. One example that I often give is that usually one parent is a little bit more the disciplinarian and the other one's a little bit more the, the loving one. And that's a great complimentary fit because parent because children need both and in fact wise parenting involves both discipline and a lot of love and so if you can figure out how to work together instead of be at odds with one another those differences will serve you and then finally the similarities that exist between partners is also a bridge to connection right and you share kids and you know you might even share the fact that you both work and that you both are juggling a lot of balls and so there's a lot of ways that you can um, connect through those similarities. So again, there are surprising ways that having all of these demanding roles can actually serve your primary romantic relationship if you know how to harness it. I was laughing because our kids, if they're listening to this, who are now 27, 25, and 23 are like, oh my gosh, she nailed it. Mom and dad are so different. And now it's coming out with our puppy. Our same parenting styles are coming out with our our puppy, but anyway, I love that. all right. So you, 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 within the book, you start with the head, our mindset. Why is the mindset so important? And what are some of the initial steps that you might nudge us into? Yeah. So just like Kelly McGonigal talks about in her terrific book, Upside of Stress, and I'm sure she talked about it with you on your podcast episode, mindsets are really critical to how we move through our world and how we take up the gifts or how we miss out on gifts. Because if we're not noticing that things are possible, then we're not going to go for them. So this goes back to Carol Dweck's work. Uh, she started, she, she is the pioneer in mindset research and she started in academia uh, looking at how kids learn. She comes up with these two very basic differences in mindset, growth mindset and fixed mindset. And Fixed mindset is this idea that, you know, you're born with certain talents and skills and that's what you got and you're probably not going to move a lot. So if you're really good at math, you're really good at math. If you're really bad at math, it's never going to change. Whereas growth mindset suggests that where you start is not necessarily where you finish, that it's all about how you apply yourself, that, you know, if you get the right teacher, if you practice a lot, if you look for fun opportunities, if you learn from your mistakes, that you can get to a different place than when you started. What's so cool about the mindset research is that it's really flourished. So where it started in academia, we've now discovered that mindset, so growth mindset in a whole variety of areas can be helpful. So whether it's growing your happiness, um, learning to be more compassionate, learning to um, be less aggressive, learning to uh, exercise more, learning to manage your stress. There's all these areas where your mindset and having a more growth oriented mindset can be helpful. And so what I write about in my book is that the work family conflict mindset, this idea that work and parenting or, you know, whatever the multiple roles that you hold are only conflict and there's nothing to do about it other than these outside solutions to try to undo, you know, this conflict. And what I would suggest is that What's more helpful, just like the fixed versus growth mindset in learning math, is having a work family enrichment mindset, a mindset that really appreciates that, yes, there is discomfort, there is tension, that is unavoidable, but actually there's tremendous opportunity to use that tension, to use that conflict in how you spend your time um, 
to grow, to get better, to be happier, to be wiser, to be stronger, to be more interesting. And so mindset, that shift from the work-family conflict mindset to a work-family enrichment mindset really opens you up to gather all of these gifts that are available. That was beautiful. Beautiful. And and that kind of leads into my next question. You talk about unhelpful labels. I thought that really struck a chord. You've touched on it there with the mindset piece. Can you walk us through a little bit more of that? Yeah. So one of the things that we all do as humans is we label things. It's a way of categorizing and making the world, our very complex world, much simpler. And it's not necessarily a bad thing because it just is, you know, it's just something that we do. But there are times where when we label, it really gets us into trouble. So, for example, you know, I'm the worst parent in the world is it may feel true and there may be some some sort of self-validation that's happening there. But the more we say that to ourselves, the more we become rigid in it, right? Everything that I do feels ineffective and it's it becomes hard to see the growth opportunities and to see the opportunities to, um, you know, from a mistake, say, you know, that mistake offered me a lot of learning potential, right? Because we just see it as a negative. And so when we drop into these really fixed and negative mindsets, it really gets us stuck and, and moving in ways that often are contradictory contraindicated from how we want to show up. So if I tell myself that one example that I, that I always like to say is, you know, something that we, it's less about truth and accuracy and more about workability. So if I walk around all day and say to myself, you know, I'm going to die someday, you know, I am mortal and death is coming, right? This is a label. uh, I'm mortal, but it's not a helpful one because it doesn't help me engage in the world. It just kind of drops me into a very dark, gloomy place. Whereas if I say, you know, I, time is finite, but today is, here and I'm healthy and I'm going to engage in it, then that really opens me up to engage in more value aligned ways. And so, you know, everybody's got that labels that they have that they find themselves regularly dropping into. Don't worry about the ones that aren't interfering. But when you notice yourself telling yourself or somebody else uh, something that feels very rigid, very black and white, uh, and that those kinds of labels feel like they're interfering with how you want to, you or they want to show up in the world, then that's an opportunity to sort of pause, unhook from the label by saying, okay, that's a label. It, it may even be true, but is it helpful? So this question of, is that helpful is a really important one. Is that label helpful? So for example, if you tell your kid, like you are not good at math, right? Is that helpful? Maybe, maybe it'll help them not try and turn to other things that are more natural, that they're more naturally skilled at, but it also is limiting. And so you can make your own choice about, you know, how you, how you, what labels you choose to adopt, but it's useful to ask that question of like, how is this serving me? What might be the ways that it's interfering with showing up in value aligned ways or or helping my child to show up in ways that help them to grow to be the best kind of person that they can be or interfering with my ability at work. Um, And when it comes to, again, working parenthood, some of the labels are, you know, conflict, impossible, unfair. Again, all of those might be true, but if they're interfering with your forward movement and with your enjoyment and with your showing up in more value aligned ways, then I would argue that 
that's where the problem lies because it's it's obstructive and that's there for an opportunity to unhook and pick some labels that feel more flexible more growth more growth oriented so would one at least partial summary of that be you, you don't want to take these on as your identity you want to take them as instruction so if i say i'm a horrible parent that's an identity if i say i made a mistake with my son just now that's instructional. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, the more that you can connect those labels and, and those, you know, short narratives with your values of, you know, what kind of a parent do I want to be? You know, you don't want to be a horrible parent. You do want to be somebody who learns from your mistakes and who teaches uh, that failure is not the end, it's an opportunity, right? So you can also think about it from that perspective, like how do I want to show up and how does my label reflect how I want to show up as parent, as worker, as somebody who holds a lot of roles in life. And and with the kids, even going back, whatever, 20 minutes ago or so in our conversation about having that with your kids. Okay, so I said something I shouldn't have said to my daughter how powerful to have that conversation with her, honey, I am really sorry. I realize I made a mistake. What would be uh, in the future? This will come up again because we're humans and how, what would be helpful for me to, what would be a helpful way for me to approach this with you in the future? And she's probably never even thought about that either. Like what a wonderful (laughs) conversation between a, a parent and a child. Totally. I think the more our kids can see us learning and growing from our own mistakes, the more they feel comfortable making their mistakes. And we know without question that the best way to learn is through mistakes, right? There's no better teacher than your own failures. Failures are not something that we can avoid nor that we should try to avoid because it's how we learn best. And in fact, um, you know, we shouldn't be encouraging our kids to take reasonable risks, push themselves and and to learn from where they aren't perfect because they're not going to be perfect. Um, and well, I our kids do this were, all the time. Yeah. Right. Except aren't. for Brad's kids. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I'll, I tell my kids all the time the things that I'm working on and I tell them all the time, you know, when I fumble and when I get embarrassed and, and we talk about it, you know, in, in ways that to me feel value aligned because I I want them to know that I try hard and I fall flat on my face and, and that I'm proud of myself because I pick myself back up and try to do better the next time. Yeah. Our kids are used to me falling on my face. So (laughs) that's that's well built into our family. You talk about learning to spin our story. I, I love the concept, the importance of personal narratives. We actually have a speaker at our retreat that will be speaking on that subject. What what role does this play in our role as working parents? Yeah, so I had the chance to interview a narrative researcher, and he gave me this great line, which is that spiders spin webs, humans tell stories, and stories matter deeply. Stories are really instructional, right? Just as our working parent mindsets really shape how we think about our our stressors and our and our gifts, um, labels kind of orient us. Stories are uh, a really more fleshed out version of the labels, and they can really mm. help us to understand what's going on in our world and and really guide how we interact with it. And so, you know, I always think about this very early parenting experience that I had when I had my first child and I was a stressed out first time mom trying to figure out the balance of work and being a parent 
totally sleep deprived. And I remember talking to a colleague and saying, you know, I, I don't have family nearby. This is too much for me. I don't, I don't know how I'm going to do it. And she said, you know, I had, I was in the same situation. She was, her kids are a few years older. And I remember talking to, she said, I remember talking to a lot of friends who had family nearby. And I just thought to myself, I don't have family nearby. I'm an Amazon. I am tougher than anyone. (laughs) And I just thought that was such a great way, a great shift, right? Rather than saying, this isn't fair. And why don't I have what other people have saying, because I'm tough. I'm damn tough. (laughs) And it it, it was just this pivotal moment for me. Exactly. Yeah. And it was such a more helpful story than feeling sorry for myself for something that just wasn't going to happen. I did. My family wasn't going to move to the East Coast. They like California weather much better. Um, So this was a way that I could tell a story that was also true that helped me. It actually helped me to get stronger by telling myself that Mm. where telling myself this was unfair and I didn't have what other people had was just going to make me feel sorry for myself and probably not get that much stronger. And so again, I think really thinking about what are the ways that we can build a story that help us to show up in ways that really matter to us is so critical. Um, the other the other quote that I love is from Julia Child. And she says, you know, you can't turn a sozier into a veal Orloff, but you can do something very good with a sozier. So it doesn't mean that you start with exactly the ingredients that you would ideally want. But it does mean that we can create goodness from what we actually have. So figuring out where what we have to work with and writing a story that represents the best that we can do and, and, you know, the ways that we really want to live our lives, given our constraints, I think is quite helpful. Well, and it, it reminds you, this is how it is. It's not going to, whining is not going to change it. So um, let's take our story from where we're at. Uh, but I will, let me just add in too, that sometimes a story can be extremely motivational to to create change. So for example, if, if you said, you know, this is really, un, I could have said, this is really unfair and something needs to be done. And I'm going to be the person who affects change in my environment, who creates new a new village around me and for other mm. people. So that could have been actually a very workable story. But you, again, you want to edit very carefully. So, right. you know, look for the silver linings and what can't be changed. Um, write a good story about what can that is going to inspire and motivate you. Great addition. Excellent. Uh, After the head, you move to the feet and suggest that Mm -hmm. doing the right hard things the right way. We just didn't read Steve Magnus, so his whole book on doing hard things. What what does this look like from your perspective in this context on a daily basis? Yeah, so I think about it in in the words of um, Aristotle, sort of this practical wisdom idea that Barry Schwartz talks a lot about. He's a, a psychologist who's written a couple of terrific books. But, you know, practical wisdom is doing the right thing at the right time with the right people in the right circumstance. And everyone's got to really figure that out for themselves. But what I will say is that, you know, what better way to learn that kind of wisdom then a complicated life with a lot of demands, right? There, there's so much learning to be had, um, you know, both with your job and with your family and in the balance between the two. Um, I think practical wisdom requires a lot of resilience. It requires grit and it requires a lot of flexibility and being able to pivot towards what matters most to you. And again, working parenthood is really like the, the best 
learning environment to to gain all of those kinds of skills. It, it sounds like you dive into the challenge threat research a little bit here. It, it's just that perspective of instead of uh or uh oh, it's all right. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> is, is that is that similar to what you're talking through there? Is that and for those that are not familiar with yes. challenge threat, it's literally you're in the same situation, but the the way you approach it literally changes your heart rate, literally changes your blood flow, and allows you to then obviously perform when you have better blood flow and your heart's beating more effectively, you perform better too. So they've found that that your perspective on whether it's a challenge or a threat changes your outcome with the same baseline. And, and, and that sounds like the type of thing that you're walking us through here in terms of the approach. Yeah, a hundred percent. So this comes out of, uh, well, work that Kelly McGonigal cites in her book, The Upside of Stress. I talk about it in my Finesse Your Stress chapter. Um, and, you know, there's this one researcher, Jeremy Javison, whose work is really super cool, but he has participants go through this incredibly stressful public speaking um, test where he has evaluators sort of sit there with um, their arms crossed and kind of, you know, shaking their heads in disappointment as you're giving a public speech. And then you have to do mental arithmetic, counting backwards by sevens. And this is very stressful for even the most confident people. It's a very stressful experience. What they do is they separate these participants in two groups. And one group is told, you know, stress is bad for you. You should try not to be that stressed. You should try to just calm yourself down. The other stress, the other group is told stress is good for you. It'll help you to learn and grow. And, you know, if you get feedback, that's really uh, the way that we get better at whatever the task is at hand. And just as you're saying, having a mindset of stress as a challenge versus stress as a threat is really, really helpful. And that's exactly right. And, and again, gets to the mindset of working parenthood that we want to be in, which is these challenges for the most part are not threats. We're not in imminent danger. Our children are largely, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, I would hazard a guess that your children are probably not at risk of not being housed or fed or um, educated, you know, some of the very basic needs. And so when we experience this, oh my God, everything's falling apart. That's our body interpreting some of these stressors mm. as threats. Mm. And we can correct that by doing what, what's called a reappraisal and asking ourselves, is this actually a threat or is it a, or is it a challenge? So this is something I always do. I, I hate being late. So when I'm in the car and I can feel myself freaking out because I'm going to be late to something <sighs> that's important. It's not a great thing to cut it so close, but also I can remind my body, this is a challenge that's not a threat. Nobody's going to die. Nobody's going to be harmed. Somebody might be annoyed. That's not the end of the world. And I can try to do better next time. This is a challenge, right? It's a challenge for me to sit with this discomfort. It's a challenge for me to get my schedule organized enough that I'm not going to be late. And it's going to be potentially a challenge to this relationship because I'm going to have annoyed someone that I'm going to have to figure out how to handle that. And all of those things are learning opportunities for me to do better the next time to, you know, massage this relationship. And so in various moments of our life, when we notice ourselves freaking out that, you know, this is everything's falling apart and this is a disaster, a tragedy, a catastrophe, we can pause and ask ourselves, you know, is this a threat? You know, is, is anybody's life in danger or is this more of a challenge that I need to figure out how to navigate? And just as you're noting, when we switch the category that our experience falls under, 
it helps our body calm down enough, not and actually, we want our body a little bit activated when sure. we have a challenge, right? Because it helps us do better. Um, but it drops out of the full panic mode where we're a bit less effective. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about the, the one-off here. So the, the parent, the friend, the coach of the working parent, our youngest and his wife are expecting a baby in a few months, and they're both super high performers. They've got a lot on their plate. They're going after a lot in life. How can the the parent, the friend, the coach, et cetera, help in ways that are actually helpful, not just ridiculous comments or statements or whatever? What what would you suggest? Well, I think if you have members of your community that you are friends with, I, I think building community is a great thing to do uh, for future parents. I am a huge advocate of building your village. I think it, it, we really are built to raise rear children in groups. Doing it alone is really, really hard. So hopefully you'll be on hand to help them as well. We are right here. Fun as a grandparent. <laughs> That's awesome. You're going to have so much fun. Um, and then figuring out, you know, really being thoughtful about how they want to show up as uh, working parents and talking that through and then figuring out, you know, what are the supports that need to be put into place, whether it's childcare or a flexible work schedule for a period of time. And then, you know, thinking, you know, having those support, supportive people help them think through, you know, what do they want to subtract? What do they want to delegate? What do they want to really commit to? And doing it really flexibly. So, I, I, you know, I think now is a time to be really reflective and, and in that planning stage. And I, I think what isn't helpful is to say it will be like this or you can't do that. Mm. Right. Because there's nothing that's very predetermined. It it all is really individual based. And, you know, we live in a world where there are lots and lots of opportunities to do things in in variety of different ways. One thing I will say is that, you know, many people will tell a super high achiever, you can't be high achieving after kids. And that simply isn't true. I actually think that there's loads of examples where high achievers, even athletes, you know, have have children and then return and and do wonderfully. So and I think that that's one thing that I hope comes out of my book, which is that people recognize that being a parent isn't a hindrance to your non-parenting life, it can really serve it in a variety of ways. It can provide you with motivation. It can provide you with certain skills. It can strangely provide you with time off that can actually be very rejuvenative for work or for athletic endeavors. Right. Good. Last one, my friend, on page 143. So I'm getting really specific here, but you give us the phrase, wander without getting lost. I love that so much. Where does that fit for the working parent? So this is in the creativity chapter. Um, And, you know, one thing that I think is super cool is the research on creativity that suggests there's a couple different ways to go about being creative. I mean, you can go sort of, you know, pedal to the metal, hard driving and sit down with a problem until you solved it, you know, for all the hours that you have in a day or a week, or you can engage these other processes. And one of them is wandering, but we can wander, mind wander, that is in really kind of careful ways. And actually working parenthood allows this to happen in, in, in pretty cool ways, I think. So there's this uh, four-step process of creativity. Let's see if I can remember all the steps. Um, 
it is uh, preparation, incubation, illumination, and verification. And so the step that I'm particularly interested in where I encourage people to, to in, people who are trying to solve complex work problems to use parenting time is the incubation period. So if you're at work mm. and you're really stuck on a problem, whereas non-parents might stay there until they figured it out and, you know, do all the different strategies to figure out that problem without leaving work, parents got to go get their kid. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not a problem because that serves as really helpful incubation time. So what happens when we're not consciously focused on a problem is that a part of our brain that's sort of in the midline called the default mode network get lights up. So when our brain is technically at rest, because we're not actively focused, it's actually still working. It's just working in a very different way. And that way involves a lot more creative thinking. So, you know, when you have an exchange and you couldn't think of a great comeback and then you're in the shower, not thinking about much of anything. And you're like, oh, I should have said that. That's exactly what's happening. That's your default mode network coming up with creative ideas. And actually, when we're really deliberately focused on something, we tend not to be as creative. We tend to think in more linear ways. And so stepping away from a problem to parent, to read your kid a story, to even do boring tasks that you don't much like can be a really creative uh, act creatively active time for people. Mm. And so it's a time that you can wander, allow your mind to wander, really encourage it to wander. And in fact, there's this one very, very cool study that showed that if you sort of know that you're going to come back to a problem and deliberately move away from it, it's even more effective than if you just sort of wander away without uh sort of reminding yourself, I'm going to be coming back to this. So actually telling yourself, you know, I'll come back to this. Let me let my default mode network get to work. And now I'm going to go parent. Then you might actually discover that when you come back, you'll have some clarity that you didn't have before. Wow. Love it. The book is work, parent, thrive. Love it. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you back. Congratulations. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. If only I would have had Dr. Sean Brown's guidance 27 years ago. Thanks for tuning into the number one podcast for health and wellness coaching. And thank you for sharing with others. That's a big reason it's growing like this over the initial five years that we've been producing these episodes for our community. And speaking of community, did you know you can pick up Be a Catalyst hoodies, t-shirts, coffee mugs, and all kinds of stuff. 100% of the profits go to charity. This is not a profit center. This is something we're doing to try to get the message out and help people remember, let's all be a Catalyst. Great gifts for family, friends, clients, even yourself. The link with details is in the podcast description if you want to check it out. Now, it's time to be that Catalyst. This is Dr. Brad Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute signing off. Make it a great rest of your week, and I'll speak with you soon on the next episode of the Health, Wellness, and Performance Catalyst, or maybe over on the YouTube coaching channel.